Good morning. I am obviously not Roger. My name is Jordan, and I will be uh, giving you a message this morning. Uh, some of you might know me better as Deanna's husband or Titus and Levi's dad. Um, it's been a few years since I've done this, so if it just totally goes sideways, we'll wrap it up and call it an early one. Sound good? All right, let's pray. Dear God, we come to you this morning to gather in your name as your church. And Father, we ask that what happens this morning be what honors you, what pleases you, that your will be done. God, we ask that your presence be manifest and that we hear your leading and that we sense your guidance, God. We submit to you humbly as your people and you as our God. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So, if you haven't been with us, the theme for the last I'm not even sure how many weeks now, has been death to life. And the idea is that we're going through chapter by chapter the book of John. So we started with chapter 1, and we worked all the way up to chapter 19 last week. And it was a big one. It was the crucifixion of Jesus. It was monumental. And uh, this week, as you might guess, <laughs> we're going to talk about chapter 20. So if you don't have your Bible, uh, go ahead and raise your hand. We've got some very enthusiastic guests ready to hand them out. Um, and like Roger says, something, something, you can't take the TV with you, but you can keep the Bible if you want, right? Like I said, John chapter 20. If you want to completely zone me out and just read that passage, that's totally fine. God's word is way better than anything I can do. But here we go. What's happening in this passage, uh, it transcends time itself. It affects the past, the present, the future, its effects ripple throughout existence itself. This is a monumental passage. It's one of the best in the whole Bible. It's a, it's a privilege to even get to talk about it. I'm excited that we get to, to dive into this and just soak in what's written in these words. And even though it's this amazing monumental thing in God's perfect ways, he figures out a way to use ordinary people to make this happen. So what we're going to focus on are those ordinary people. The first ordinary person is a woman named Mary Magdalene. And in the book of John, there's about 20 different Marys, right? So let's make it clear which one we're talking about. Mary Magdalene is not Mary's mom, or is not Jer uh, Jesus's mom, and she's not the, the Mary from the story about Lazarus and Martha and all that sort of thing. This is Mary Magdalene. She's from Galilee, and in the book of Luke, we find out a little insight about her. Uh, Luke chapter 8 says that Jesus uh, cleansed her of seven demons and that she and a few other women traveled with the disciples and were able to provide for all their needs. So we're learning a few things about this Mary. If she was able to, pr to travel with these 12 men and uh, provide for them, then she must have been wealthy, right? So Mary Magdalene more than likely came from a pretty wealthy family. And if she had seven de demons that needed driven out of her, then before meeting Jesus, she probably wasn't living a life obedient to God. She was probably chasing after every worldly high that her money had to offer her. She was probably trapped in that sin, and it had enslaved her and chained her, and it was what dominated her life. And then we have this picture of Jesus coming and offering her a different way. And she throws down everything that, that you know, comes with a wealthy life, and she follows Jesus. 
and she's broken in the power of those sins. And then, after traveling with Jesus for probably around a year, maybe a little more, um, we get to chapter 19, where this woman whose life was just totally changed by Jesus has to witness him get arrested. And not just arrested, but flogged. And then in front of her people, the Jews, this man who has just changed her life 100% for the better is condemned to be crucified. And then he is on a cross, executed, and dies. And she buries him. She's among the women who are there to to take care of his body and, and properly prepare it. And if you just try and get in this, the head of this person, of this woman, like, all of that hope she must have had from that direction, from, from being broken of that bondage, and, and here's the man that was saving her, and he's dead. There's another man another person, another ordinary person in this story that the, the, the chapter really focuses on, and his name's Thomas. And if you remember, weeks ago, we talked about Thomas a few times, and in one passage where it talks about Lazarus being resurrected, there's a conversation that Jesus is having with the disciples, and he basically says, hey, I got a message that Lazarus is going to die. And Lazarus was a good friend of theirs. They'd stayed at his house several times. Lazarus is going to die, and we're going to go back. And the disciples are scared, because the last time they were at Lazarus' house, crowds of people were showing up trying to stone Jesus and them. So going back to Lazarus' house was potentially a death sentence. But what Thomas says is, all right, let us go that we may die also. So Thomas is bold. Thomas isn't afraid of dying. He says, all right, Jesus, you say that this is the path we need to go? Let's do it. I'm going to serve you completely. I am ready to risk my life for you. That's the kind of follower that Thomas was. We know that he was more than likely a fisherman. He was more than likely uh, another one of the, the guys from Galilee, like most of the disciples were. So when he committed to following Jesus, he was leaving a lot behind. A fisherman, it would have been your own business. So he would have just been leaving his own, own business behind with all of his supplies, all of his equipment to be swept up by whoever thought it would look good. And he would have been a young man, so trying to have a wife when you're not in your hometown is nearly impossible. Assuming he wasn't already married, he may have been leaving his wife behind to follow Jesus. So this is a guy that's given a lot to follow Jesus because he sees hope to him. And we know that the disciples, they eventually realized, like, Jesus isn't just a prophet. He's not just a wise man. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ that we've been waiting for. And in that time, they were stuck on this idea of the Christ rescuing them from Rome. Right? So, a little bit of backstory. Israel was under the control of the Roman Empire, and they were upset about it because they wanted their own king, because they wanted to have their own sovereignty, they wanted freedom. And they looked at the passages in the Old Testament that talked about the Messiah and about the Christ and how he was going to be the new king. And in their mind, they're picturing a king like David, 
who basically never lost a, a war, never lost a battle. Or kings like Solomon, who was so wealthy and blessed the country so insanely well that he could shame any country, just gold everywhere. And that's the kind of king they're picturing to come. And I mean, imagine Thomas's perspective. Here's Jesus, the Christ. He's admitted it. And he's surrounded himself with like 12 fishermen, like tough dudes. You got 12 guys, you could probably make things happen with force, like telling Rome no. And here Thomas is saying like, I'll die. Whatever Jesus says, I'll die. So this is a guy who's ready to lay it down for serving Jesus. And then we get to the Garden of Gethsemane. Back to chapter 19. And the guards come to take Jesus away, to arrest him. This is Thomas's moment. He's got his men. He's got his boys. We're going to say no. And Peter draws a sword. And Jesus is like, no. Stand down. And I, in my mind, I just picture all of the wind just kind of leaving Thomas. Like, but this is, this is our moment, right? And then just like Mary, he witnesses Jesus get flogged. And whenever the Roman Empire tries to give Jesus back, Thomas' own people, the Jews, say, no, crucify him. And he's helpless. The guy he was ready to die for, he can't help. He can't have his back. He's just powerless and has to watch it all unfold. For three days, Thomas and Mary and all the rest of the disciples would have just been thinking about this stuff. They'd have been questioning whether the last year or more that they'd spent following Jesus, were they crazy? Did they misunderstand him? Were they totally wrong in this? Had they lost? Is it over? Not only that, I mean, they love Jesus. So not only is their purpose in life being questioned, they're mourning the loss of a dear friend. And that's the setup for what we're about to read in John chapter 20. So I'm going to start in verse, uh, verse 1. Just follow along with me if you'd like. It's a little bit long, but here we go. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put it. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, and the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in, and the strips of linen were lying there. But he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed, yet they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. When the disciples went back to their homes, Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over and looked into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? 
They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? And thinking that he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I'll go get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned, and she looked toward him, and cried out in Aramaic, Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. And Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go and said to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father, and your Father, and your Father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had seen these things, or that he had said these things to her. Just to recap the story, basically, Mary goes to the tomb because there would have been more to do to address the body, and uh, she sees that the stone's been rolled away, right? And her first thought is that somebody's come to steal the body, to try and shame Jesus, to try and embarrass this whole thing even more, probably. So she goes back to the disciples, and she says, hey, like, somebody's messing with Jesus' body. So two of them run to the tomb, and they, they see that it's true, that his body is no longer in there. And only thing that's left are the, the, the cloth that had ripped, wrapped him up. And they take it like a smack in the face. You know, it's three days of them being sad, and here's somebody now wanting to desecrate their Lord's body. So they go back. And Mary, she's so moved by what's happened, so just devastated and overwhelmed, she just stays in that place to cry. And then before she can totally take in what's going on, she sees two angels. And then there's another person behind her and, and speaks up. And she's not certain what's going on. So at first she thinks, like, maybe this is the person who's taken her Lord's body. And then when Jesus is like, no, Mary, she recognizes the voice. She recognizes him calling her by name. And she rejoices. Because suddenly there's hope back in her life. Suddenly the light has returned, the, the path, everything that she had lost, everything that had been taken from her. There's Jesus. And she's ecstatic. And she goes back to the disciples and follows Jesus' instructions about telling them what's happening, right? This is a huge moment. Jesus reappearing. Like, let's, let's take this in. Let's, let's think about what's happening. Up to this point, throughout the book of John, Jesus has done literally miraculous stuff. He's healed people who were sick. He's healed people who had lifelong deformities. He's driven out demons. He's, he's walked into a social structure where poor people weren't allowed to be near to God. And he said, no, and turned it on its head and said, your money doesn't matter. Go to Jesus or go to me. Go to, go to God. You're welcome, the Father. You are loved. He's taken lies and he's cast them down and he's taken broken people and he's lifted them up. Then, shortly before this, he's overcome death. He goes to the home of Lazarus, his dear friend who's been dead for days, and he just raises him back to life. So if you take a step back and think about it, basically everything that we as human beings are ailed by, Anything that this world can try and use to oppress us and tell us we have to do things their way, 
Jesus has overcome. Jesus has broken it. He's proven that he has authority over those things. And then, in this moment, he's been crucified recently, right? He took on the death that we deserve, willingly. He's atoned for sin. He's, he's paid the cost of what we deserve for our defiance, for us doing the wrong thing. He's paid it. And not only has he paid it, he's so victorious over death and sin that he comes back in the flesh, resurrected. There was no one more powerful than him that brought him back. He did it because he is God. And he proclaims that, his victory, conquering, breaking the power of sin and death in this moment. And it's a celebration. Hope has returned. The light is here. What Jesus did had been prophesied about over and over and over. And one of the most telling prophecies goes all the way back to Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, shortly after sin had entered the world because people did the wrong thing, they listened to the serpent, God curses the serpent. And this is what he says to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Jesus has the wounds, two puncture wounds. He's been struck by the serpent. But in this moment, he's come back and he's crushed his head. And this was God's plan all the way back in Genesis. And here it is being fulfilled. I'm excited. (laughs) All right. Let's read some more. So we'll go to uh, verse 26. Because we know this isn't the end of the story. Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. The other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in my hands and put my finger where his nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. After Jesus appears to Mary, she goes back and tells them they have dinner, right? And at that dinner, they've got the doors locked. And Jesus appears to them, just shows up in the middle of the the place. And he says to them, peace to you, right? Because these disciples are understandably on edge a little bit, I imagine. Um, They just crucified Jesus, and now there's word that his body has been taken. There's a good chance that somebody wants to come and make the disciples the culprits and pay and all that sort of thing. So they've locked themselves in this building, and Jesus appears to them and says, peace to you. And shows himself to the disciples that he truly has been resurrected. That the testimony he gave Mary is true and valid and can be trusted. But for whatever reason, Thomas wasn't there. And Thomas, I mean, he's still decimated. He's still just crushed. He was ready to fight. He was ready to give it all. And then he watched his Lord die. And now there's these people 
telling him, like, oh, no, we saw Jesus. He spoke to us. He, or whatever. And, and Thomas basically says, like, no, I'm, I'm not going to accept it. I'm not ready to be vulnerable again. I'm not ready to put my hope in that again until I can see the body we put in that tomb talk to me. Until I can touch the wounds that I watched take my Lord. Well, then we go to the next passage. Verse 26, it says, A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me and you have believed, blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Thomas, my Lord, my God. It took a lot. He wasn't ready to just accept that testimony, but that light is back in his life. That hope, that guidance, that path. It's been restored. The third person, third ordinary person in this story that I want you to imagine, I want you to put yourself in this story, right? Ordinary person. And just like Thomas and Mary, there's probably something in your past that you're ashamed of, some kind of sin that you're either still enslaved by or you're still paying the consequences for through guilt or shame or regret. And before I lose you, before you slip away in that guilt and that shame and that regret, I want you to stop. I want you to picture being part of this, this story where Jesus, he's on his ministry, he's walking, and he stops on his path, and he looks at you, and he looks you in the eye. And he says, put it all down. The shame, the guilt, the sin, drop it. And whatever it is that's keeping you holding on to that sin, whether it's wealth or family or a business or whatever else, drop it. Follow me. the end of the passage, it says, Jesus did many other miraculous things in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the point of it all. This is why it was written. That's what John wanted when he wrote this down. He wanted for you, his audience, the people who read this passage, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and to live it out. To live a life for Jesus. I hope this morning you do believe the things that you've heard. That you do accept them. Maybe it's the first time you've heard them. More than likely for most of us, we've heard this a hundred times. But as you hear it and wrestle with it and soak it in, I hope that you genuinely believe it. So the next step is to live it. How do you do that? Three quick things as far as living it out goes. And the first one is the one that we normally get. The next step, according to Acts chapter 2, is repent and be baptized. 
What repent means is that whatever sins you know you're doing, whatever way you know you're rebelling against God, stop completely. If those sins are you walking in a direction, not only are you going to stop walking in that direction, you're going to turn around and go the other way. You're not going to do it less. You're not going to do it so it's not quite as bad. You're going to stop. That's what repenting is. And then baptizing, baptism is something that we as a church are excited about because it's a way that we can participate with you giving yourself to Jesus, that you can celebrate beginning this life and living for him. And basically, we just, we dunk you in some water, all right? But it's fun. It's awesome. If it's something you're thinking about, I encourage you, come and talk to us so we can be part of, of you going down that path. But that's just the first step. We as Christians, especially in America, have this tendency to treat baptism like it's some kind of, uh, like, finish line. If we can just get people across that finish line, let's move on, we're done. Like, got them, check mark. But there's more to it than that. There's more than just, hey, do fewer bad things and try to show up every Sunday. Right? Living for Jesus is a daily commitment. So the next thing that I want to talk about is die every day. That's probably shocking to see, right? Like, that's not how we normally look at living for Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks about how, um, well, basically his church in Corinth, they've stopped accepting the whole gospel. And he says, like, hey, stop picking and choosing. What they've done is they've stopped uh, believing in, like, a literal resurrection. And Paul's like, that's nonsense. If Jesus was literally resurrected, then so will you be. Stop picking and choosing what sounds right. The whole thing is true. But the illustration that he gives is that he says, I face death every day. I die to myself every day. And he compares it to how he fought wild beasts in Ephesus. Apparently that's an illustration that this church was familiar with. But then reading his other passages, we know that people were trying to stone Paul all the time that he was going to prison on a regular basis for saying what was true, for proclaiming what Jesus taught and did. And that's the level that Paul expects from us. That Jesus is literally the first priority. There's nothing else. Like, we wake up in the morning, and there's normally... 5,000 things pulling us around, right? I gotta make breakfast, gotta get ready for work, gotta get the kids out of bed. I need to do those taxes, or I need to do, there's like all this stuff on the back of our head, right? But every day, instead, we need to say like, no, that's not important. Myself is not important. Me continuing to breathe isn't what matters the most. What matters the most is serving the Lord God Almighty, living for him completely, fulfilling the ministry that he's put, on, put ahead of me, and, and obeying the, the will of his teaching. It's a daily commitment. Jesus tells his disciples, pick up your cross and, carry, and follow me every day. It's challenging. It's big. 
And we don't necessarily face persecution in the name of killing us or putting us in prison. So it's kind of easy to let it slip. But if that's the bar, then we can't do anything less. The third step, third thing, is go and make disciples. This is what Jesus tells his disciples before he ascends to heaven. These are the last instructions that he gives. He tells his disciples, like, this is your mission. This is it. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's the ultimate goal. That's what we want to get to. We don't just stop whenever we've got them baptized. Discipleship is an ongoing process. Discipleship means being vulnerable with each other. Discipleship means holding each other accountable, making each other part of each other's lives. We tend to want to do things comfortably. It's our, our natural inclination, right, to be comfortable, to want to do it just the way that feels right. But the problem is that the example Jesus gave us isn't a comfortable one. God has the power and the authority to do whatever he wants. He's the boss, right? But the way that he went about redeeming us wasn't comfortable. Jesus came into this world and suffered all the same things that you and I suffer. And then he allowed himself to go to the cross, to take on all of our sins, and to be crucified and die. And if that's the example that Jesus, your God, your king, gave you, then why should we as his servants expect to have any less of a calling? 